me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Remember, just because you're doing a lot more doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done. Don't confuse movement with progress. We live in a paradoxical time where we have more comfort but less peace, more connectivity but less connection, more information but less wisdom. The purpose of this podcast is to explore these natural tensions with independent voices who will push our thinking. This is the Paradox Podcast. So it took me getting good enough at it to know how good at it I was not. It took me getting just good enough at it to know I'm not good at it at all. You can learn quite a lot from experience. That's one thing. There's something after that. Have you the will and determination to do anything about it? Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Paradox Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Tibbetts. For episode number 11, I chatted with Karlyn Borisenko, an organizational psychologist who helps organizations and teams find happiness and fulfillment at work through her companies and workplace. Carlin came on my radar when my dad told me about a viral medium essay she wrote called, I've been a Democrat for 20 years, here's what I experienced at a Trump rally, which has been read by over 3 million people. I didn't read the article initially, but when I heard Carlin interviewed on a talk radio show I occasionally listened to, I DM'd her on Twitter and she agreed to come on the podcast. What could be more paradoxical than a registered Democrat going to a Trump rally, right? We had a wide-ranging discussion about her experience in an online knitting group that turned her off to cancel culture, taking part in the New Hampshire primary and meeting every Democrat presidential candidate, and her decision to go to a Trump rally and try to understand how her political opponents think. We talked about the importance of shared values like free speech, thinking for yourself, and attributing good intent to those you disagree with. We recorded this conversation in March as COVID-19 was ramping up and offered up a few fresh takes on how the world was starting to change that may or may not age well, and that's okay. It was nice to escape Silicon Valley and talk to someone from a completely different part of the country. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Carlin Borisenko. Carlin, thanks for joining me on the Paradox Podcast. I think we're both under state-mandated quarantine right now. I think John Sununu, your governor, just maybe announced it yesterday. Is that right? He did. But the the interesting thing I've learned about New Hampshire is like in some states they're making like, you know, gun stores close. But in New Hampshire, our gun stores are essential businesses because we live free or die. That's right. You got to live by the motto. And you're an organizational psychologist. So you work with organizations that are dealing with tough decisions and culture and and probably stressful situations. And this is like an extreme version of that because every organization, every company, probably every client of yours across the country is dealing with extreme levels of uncertainty above and beyond what we normally would. What are some of the conversations you're having with them now that maybe were a bit different than the conversations you were having two, three months ago? Well, you know, it's funny. I actually just today, we just had our first kickoff meeting today, launched like a group coaching program for managers that are transitioning their teams to working at home. And it's so weird because it, it, you have to go like really back to basics for the first couple of weeks. And, and you're having to ask questions about like, okay, what technology do they need? Do they need to bring home their office chair? How do, they, how do we get them office supplies? Because they can't just go to the supply cabinet anymore. It's like these really basic questions. I mean, usually when I'm working with clients, it's much bigger picture. Like, how do we bring the team together and get everyone to play nicely? But no, we're like back to grade school level stuff now. And that's the way it's got to be at first, because if you don't take care of those very practical needs, then you can't get to the bigger things. 
Absolutely, yeah. It's sort of like survival mode right now. And and for folks who don't know you, so the way I first came to know you, actually, it's interesting. I was in Tahoe. My parents live up in uh, Lake Tahoe. I was up there middle of February, and my dad, who does not have a Medium account, barely uses Twitter, he's like, you have to read this blog post by this woman from New Hampshire who wrote about her knitting group and that she was a Democrat and, and then she went to a Trump rally. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This sounds like the most insane article ever. And so that kind of stuck in my mind. I didn't read the article, but then I just randomly one day tuned into the Dennis Prager show, which is a, an AM radio show that I used to listen to back when I was in like high school. And I almost never listened to it now, but I just wanted to kind of hear just how he was processing. At that point, we were still dealing with the primary coronavirus was like just starting to come into the zeitgeist a little bit. And actually you were on the Dennis Prager show doing an interview. And I think while you were interviewing or while you were on the air, I sent you a DM on Twitter and you (laughs) responded and said, oh, I'd love to come on the podcast. And here we are, which is sort of amazing. But yeah, can you share a little bit for folks that haven't read your article yet? And everyone should just talk a little bit about your experience, probably starting from the beginning in the knitting group. Yeah. So, so, uh, so quick story about the article though, the, the original title of the article, which I actually liked a lot better was I, I've been a Democrat for 20 years. Here's what I experienced at a Trump rally. And mm. at some point medium changed it, but just to provide um, like additional context for people, that was really the perspective I was writing at. So, so yeah, so I've been a Democrat since I was 18 years old. It was like a little over 20 years. Well, yeah, a little over 20 years at this point. And I, I live in New Hampshire. We're very spoiled in New Hampshire and I, you know, New Hampshire politics is just fun because you get to see literally everyone up close. You get to meet them. You get to have conversations with them. And it's, it's just a fun kind of playground to be in. But I had never, ever, ever considered leaving the Democratic Party. I was like very committed. And then, yeah. you know, my biggest priority, of course, as like most Democrats are seeing right now is, you know, getting rid of Donald Trump and getting anyone, like pretty much anyone else in there. Sure. So that was that was where my head was at. And really, this all started last summer sometime, which is um, in the knitting community as as you said. So the knitting community is a weird place. And where I primarily engage with people who are knitting, it's not like a knitting circle. It's not like a bunch of little old ladies sitting around. It's people on Instagram that are posting pictures of their projects and posting pictures of the yarn and talking with each other and just getting very excited. And what started to happen in the knitting world was these roving gangs of social justice warriors were just going around bullying and mobbing people if they stepped even remotely out of line with like the crazy social justice left. So the very first thing that happened was this woman who makes these like really nice knitting bags, like the Louis Vuitton of knitting bags. Um, <laughs> she she wrote a blog post about her upcoming trip to India and she was so excited to go to India and she never thought she would get to go. And it seemed like such an impossible thing. And it was like getting a trip to Mars and all this stuff. It was like just this beautiful, innocent blog post. And the mob descended on her hundreds of comments oh later. And she she was forced to issue like, I mean, this full on several paragraph apology. Like a full on retraction for a, whatever not, she said wrong. Not even a retraction. Like, here's what I said. Here's why it was wrong. I mm. promise never to do it again. And so that was the first thing that happened. The next thing that happened is a woman who makes these beautiful hand-dyed yarns. She was kind of like watching all this go on and go, oh my God, what is wrong with these people? And she posted a video on YouTube basically saying, I'm uncomfortable with the bullying. I'm going to leave Instagram for a while. 
Mm. Well, that wasn't okay. And they descended on her. They tried to destroy her business. They destroyed her partnership. She got her name taken off things that she had contributed to. There were like retractions issued in magazines saying, we didn't mean to publish this person who's now saying racist things. She never said a racist thing in her life. All she said was, I'm not going to engage in the bullying, right? Right. Um, that was the second thing. But the thing that got my attention was there was this dude, Nathan Taylor, he goes by Sockmetician on Instagram. He And it, like being a guy in the knitting community is kind of like, he's like a minority in that community, right? And he's also like gay, has HIV, all this stuff that puts him in generally what is a protected category. But not this time, because his crime was posting a poem on Instagram asking for kindness. That's all it was. That's all it was. And asking for kindness is now against the social kind- justice warriors. Well, he was tone policing. And so thousands of people descended on him. How dare you tone police us? Blah, 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 blah. I mean, and it got so bad that he actually had a nervous breakdown and went into the hospital on suicide watch. It was really bad. And so I'm sitting back watching all this and I'm going, what is going on? Like, these are people I've aligned myself politically with. I am not okay with this. Mm -hmm. And it started me on this journey of what I wanted to do was really understand why people would vote for Donald Trump. Why would they engage in this conservative mentality? And kind of the two issues kind of started conflating. And I said, I need to get out of my liberal echo chamber because I really only talked to people who thought like me. I only watched videos of people who thought like me. I only watched MSNBC. MSNBC was on in my house all the time. And I was like, I need to start listening to people who think differently than me. So I started off with Ben Shapiro because my husband said to me one day, he was like, Carlin, you should listen to Ben Shapiro. You'd really like him. And I said, no, Victor, Ben Shapiro is Satan. Now, does and your husband have slightly different politics than you? or He doesn't really. I mean, like it, it, the thing of it is, and I'd actually talked about this on Dennis Prager, right? Is yeah. that um, is that my husband and I don't really talk about politics. We, ne- we just never did. I, the extent that we've talked about politics is he's an immigrant. We had to spend four years fighting immigration to get him a green card after we got married. And he's very conservative on immigration because of that. And I am too, to be quite frank. And that was really the extent that we talked about it. But no, he he was big into YouTube and listening to all the intellectual dark web people. And so that was kind of how that came about. Hmm. So I refused to listen to Ben Shapiro at first, but I relented at some point and said, okay, I'm going to wait until he's out of the house. And so he doesn't see it. And then I'm going (laughs) to watch him. And you know, discovered Ben Shapiro is actually not Satan. He's a really smart guy and he's very libertarian. And I was like, what else have I been wrong about? And it just opened up this this adventure where I started listening to these conservative voices. And then, you know, in the midst of this, I'm also going to see all the Democratic candidates. I had seen every major Democratic candidate at one point or another. And you were a Mayor Pete person, right? was a Mayor Pete person. I voted for Mayor Pete in the New Hampshire primary. But then, you know, the day before the New Hampshire primary, Donald Trump was coming to town. And I kind of thought, well, I've seen everyone else. Why why not go to a Trump rally? What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> now, okay, so there's, there's so much to unpack there. And this is a, a fascinating discussion already. So when you decided like, hey, I've already seen all the Democrats. I've seen Amy. I've seen Joe. I've seen Mayor mm-hmm. Pete. And you, you cast your ballot for Mayor Pete. And you decide, okay, I'm going to check out what this, what this Trump guy is all about. Were your friends or your family uh, who presumably maybe have politics across the spectrum, were they concerned? Were they like, oh, like, why, w- why would you want to do that? Why would you want to actually go and see what something like that would be like? Dude, everyone was concerned for 
for me. There was like legit concern for my safety in going to this Trump rally. And it actually wasn't just from people on the left. Like people on the left were definitely concerned, but people on the right were too, because this rally was like the day or two after some guy in Florida had driven his van through a Republican voter registration tent. And so they were like, Carlin, watch out for Antifa. Be careful. And I was like, I live in New Hampshire. We don't really have Antifa here. It's going to be fine. That's more of an Oregon Um, and California thing here on the West Coast. Right. But I mean, listen, like when I went to the rally, they had like bulldozers lined up all along the sidewalks where the crowds were. So I think that that was like a legit worry for someone. So like no one would have been able to drive a car through. But no, I mean, the reaction on the left universally was, Carlin, don't do it. You're going to be harassed. And it was funny because I actually went to an MSNBC live taping a couple blocks away from it right before I went over to the rally. And I was like chit-chatting with people and they were like, don't go. You're going to get harassed. These are the lowest of the low. These are the deplorables. One woman actually offered me her pepper spray to bring with me. And I was like, no, I think I'm going to be fine. And I, I went anyway. <laughs> and so I think I read in your blog post that you had your own hat on and it wasn't a Make America Great Again hat on. It was, what was it? It was something about free speech? Yeah, it was Make Speech Free Again. It ah. looks exactly like a mega hat, except it says Make Speech Free Again. Yep. And did you get reactions maybe before you went to the rally wearing a hat and people were like, "What? what's that hat about? Well, the thing about that hat is it's so funny and I never actually considered it when I bought it because I bought it originally as like my little protest against cancel culture because I hate cancel culture. And I was terrified to wear that hat at first when I first got it. It kind of like sat in my living room for a while. But when I eventually started wearing it out, what I realized is that hat is completely open to interpretation. So if I'm talking to someone on the left, they think I'm talking about the right. If I'm talking to someone on the right, Mm -hmm. they think I'm talking about the left. And it's like, wow, is is there any better example? of you know how big a role perspective plays in our beliefs right yeah and i want to talk about the rally in a second but would you say maybe at the crux of this realignment or reawakening politically was this core belief that i believe in free speech i believe in the marketplace of ideas in the exchange of of true debate and what i'm seeing sort of on this cancel culture social justice warrior left is something that's very antithetical to free speech and so i'm a liberal that truly believes in free speech and i'm not willing to that's like a non-negotiable for me regardless of where i end up voting or, or aligning in terms of political party would you say that that's the case yeah, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, free speech all of my life has been one of my core issues. I thought, I mean, I remember back when I was a teenager, I really thought, thought I was going to go to like law school and, and mm. go work for the ACLU and defending free speech. And, you know, when I bought my house, the very first thing I did was throw a magnet that had the First Amendment on it up on my fridge. And so free speech to me has always been something that's, that's so, so, so important. And what I hadn't realized was how far the Democratic Party had shifted away from being the party that protects free speech. I mean, like take the ACLU, for instance. So many people that that haven't paid attention, I mean, people don't remember, like the ACLU was the organization that was defending Nazis marching through Skokie, Illinois. They've Mm -hmm. defended the Klan. They've defended these horrible, horrible people because the only way you can protect free speech is to defend the absolute worst speech. Even if you don't agree with it, that's not the point. The stuff people people agree with doesn't need need protection. And unfortunately, with the Overton window becoming more narrow, it's a narrower uh, sort of category of what actually is acceptable speech. So, okay, so you have your make speech free again hat on. 
You're in mm-hmm. line for this Trump rally. Was it a super long line or was it? Oh, it was a super long line. Yeah, it was like what, over a mile. What by the were time your I conversations in. like in line for the rally? You know, you just kind of chit chat with people just to kill time in line. And you you find out like they're from all over the place. They have all sorts of different professions. They're just normal people. Most of them, you know, you find out like a lot of veterans, a lot of, you know, like small business owners. I talked to teachers, all these things. And, you know, I, I wasn't originally planning on telling people that I was I was a Democrat, but I let it slip a couple times just because I couldn't and help myself maybe and they the universal reaction was oh my gosh welcome good for you we're so glad you're here hmm that's that's interesting okay so what was the rally itself like once you were inside i've never been to i honestly haven't been to a political rally of any kind probably in 15 years so just a little bit of background on me politically i used to be pretty involved in politics i actually was when i was 16 i was a congressional page in the U.S. House of Representatives. So, you know, when you watch these big votes, you'll see the little 16-year-olds with their Navy blazers on running around the floor of the House of the Senate. That was me at 16. So I was very into politics at a young age and then uh, went to Berkeley for school and then took a semester off when I was 19 to work at the White House. So that was George W. Bush. That was right around the 2006 election when the Republicans just got totally smashed. Nancy Pelosi became Speaker of the House. And so I was very into politics. I was part of the some of the political groups at Berkeley, and I kind of got burnt down on it. So I, I really haven't been involved in politics for the better part of the last decade. And so I have no idea what one of these rallies is like. So just walk the whole audience through what it was like when you when you walked in. Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is like, you got to understand a Trump rally is not like a normal political rally. Right. They're they're really not like normal political rallies, at least the ones that that I've been to, like they're they're fun, whatever, but they're much more serious in tone because people are trying to be serious. Trump is not trying to be serious. Like this rally is like, <laughs> clearly it is like it is like a rock concert. Well, he's trying to get people revved up. He's like Trump is an entertainer. Right. Yeah. It's like going to a festival like you see people. Well, first of all, you have to you get there so early that you know people are just like they're having beers or hanging out you see people dancing like they're they're having a grand old time and it's just even though I don't really agree with Donald Trump on many, many, many things, mm-hmm. but you just can't help get excited about the energy. It's like laid back. It's it's a good group to be a part of. And it's especially interesting because I had gone to a dinner actually with all of the Democratic candidates two days before in exactly the same place. And like the energy at the Democratic thing was like people were angsty and it was doom and gloom and it was just like not a fun place to be. Yeah. The Trump rallies are fun. That's why people go to them. That's interesting. So walking away from the Trump rally and kind of, I guess, having a realization that, okay, this is a president that I definitely don't agree with on a lot of particular policies. I probably have disagreements with a lot of his supporters and voters on a range of different things. I don't support everything he does, not even close. But you did make the decision, this is kind of sort of the punchline of the article, that you would Mm -hmm. unregister as a Democrat and become an independent. Can you talk about that decision and how connected sort of these series of experiences were to making that decision. Yeah, so I should say I had actually made that decision several months prior to that, and mm-hmm. but but the whole rally thing kind of reinforced it. And so what had happened is when I started venturing outside of my echo chamber, I came across this this YouTube channel, and they, and they had actually covered a lot of stuff in the knitting space, which is how I found them. But the, it's called Unsafe Space, and one of the hosts of Unsafe Space is this woman who was a social justice warrior for 20 years, and she had woken up after she saw the insanity of how the Democrats were acting after the 2016 election and she had started to change her views. Now she was liberal like me and but she had walked away from the Democratic Party and was part of the walkaway movement and knew people in the walkaway movement. And that was the first thing that got my attention because I was like, I thought the walkaway movement was fake. 
because MSNBC told me they were a bunch of Russian bots. And all of a sudden I had these people in front of me that were liberals that were part of the walkaway movement that were talking like me and thinking like me. Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh, this isn't fake. These are these are real life people. And so that kind of started my wheel spinning. And, and I had decided actually to leave the Democratic Party back in um, November. But I went to my town hall to deregister and I walked in. I was like, I want to change my registration to independent. And they were like, you can't. And I was like, why? And they said that they I had to wait until after the New Hampshire primary in order to do it. I was so mad. I, I yelled at them that they were being fascist and all this, <laughs> all this stuff. But it was kind of nice like, that you got to participate in the Democrat New Hampshire primary, though. That was yeah. a cool thing about it. Oh, no, I mean, that is, that's true. But the thing is, in New Hampshire, I could have anyway, because you could just select which one you do when you go in the door. But true. I was kind of like, you know, it's not going to change that I'm going to vote in the Democratic primary anyway, so whatever. But I'm going to the Trump rally definitely reinforced that it was absolutely the right decision to make. And when I deregistered from the Democratic Party a couple of days later, it was like I found freedom <laughs> in the whole thing. <laughs> so... Uh- Speaking of that freedom, kind of two questions that are interrelated. They're the flip side of each other. What do you wish people on the left understood better about people on the right? And then secondly, what do you wish people on the right understood better about people on the left? Okay, so for what I wish people on the left would understand about people on the right, what I wish they understood was that their motivations are not the same as your motivations and that you have to understand what their motivations are. They're primarily motivated by maintaining their freedoms, maintaining their liberties. And the left and the right may not agree on what the the correct motivation is, if there is such a thing as like a correct motivation. Mm -hmm. But everything that the right does is about maintaining their liberties. So for example, you know, one of the things I learned, I never understood the gun thing. I really didn't. I grew yeah. up. I, I grew up. My father had guns growing up, but I never understood why people owned guns. And then I was kind of paying attention to the two way rally in Virginia, where you know I learned that the reason they own guns is they don't want government tyranny taking over. Yeah. And if everyone has a gun, then the government can't take over, right? And that was that was mind blowing to me. I was like, oh my gosh, I I had completely misunderstood the motivation behind this. It's it's to protect us. Yep. from the government it's to protect it's, it's, it's not just about them or like they like shooting things or that they're in favor of school shootings or anything like that it's 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 for all of us and i think if the left understood the motivations of why they're doing the things they're doing they would see things a whole lot differently what i wish the right understood about the left i wish they understood that many people on the left have very positive intentions Mm -hmm. with the things that they're trying to do. And so for the right, because the right's motivated by liberty, they perceive everything on the left as being about control. Mm -hmm. And you're going to control us and tell us what to do. And certainly there are parts of the left that are very authoritarian, but that's on the fringes. It's just like, I mean, the right has the fringes and the left has their fringes. Oh, totally. Yeah. And they actually end up becoming somewhat authoritarian of different flavors because yeah. the political spectrum almost comes around like a circle when you visualize it. No, that that's totally true. But like the majority of the people on the left, they just they want to take care of people. They have mm-hmm. big hearts. They want people to, you know, have health care and to, you know, make a living wage. And the intention is good. I just think that some of the times the ways they go about it is a bit flawed. <laughs> yeah. And maybe if the right is animated by liberty, the left is animated by equality. And actually, you sort of need both. I mean, this is why, again... We'll talk about this more in a second. I consider myself someone in the center. And you need the left and the right. You need a really healthy liberal and a healthy conservative 
party to find compromise and think through these things. It's sort of like the head and the heart. It's not the head or the heart. You need both to function in, in a society. And so I think an interesting quick little detour as it relates to coronavirus, and you touched on this with sort of the, the Second Amendment. And mm-hmm. I feel like what's happened with this pandemic is it's shifted a lot of our perspectives very, very quickly. And so I, I, cr- I created a little list, actually. I was going to tweet this out, but I never did. So things like universal health care or health care in general, I think we're probably shifting a bit left on that. I think even folks on the right are going to say, OK, in a pandemic world where we need lots of testing and we need to trace people who test positive, we need a more robust health care infrastructure than we have right now and a more efficient one. I think we're seeing in terms of federal regulation as it relates to the CDC and getting all of the, this infrastructure up for testing, we've seen that federal regulation has really, really slowed us down. And so maybe that's mm-hmm. where we've shifted right. Open borders, gun rights probably shifted right, but then universal basic income, paying teachers more probably shifted left. So it's a really interesting almost mental experiment to realize that, you know what, Having fluidity of your opinions and being willing to shift your perspective based upon the circumstances is a very good and healthy thing. And coronavirus is a very unexpected surprise thing that hit the whole society like a truck out of nowhere. And just look at how, I mean, even within my own views, I've seen shifts here and there at the the margins. And so (laughs) it puts you in the place of someone who you might have disagreed with. Right. Well, you know, what's funny about the gun thing, though, is I I read an article about this somewhere or someone was talking about it where the people running out and buying guns, they're not from the right. They're from the left. No. Yeah. Right. Because they don't have. (laughs) No, it's fascinating. So what do you think now that you're registered independent? Do you feel that it's tough to be someone in the middle? I feel like there's been periods of American history, maybe back in the 90s. I was pretty young in the 90s, so not politically aware. But Clinton kind of ended up being somewhat of a centrist and triangulating with the right and the left pretty successfully in a lot of ways. And it felt like there was much more room to be centrist, center left, center right. Now I feel like with kind of the all out political warfare and culture war that we find ourselves in, there's much more pressure either from, say, the social justice warrior knitting group on Instagram or the MAGA group on Facebook to pick a side and to be forced to pick a side. And I always view this as a false choice. How do you feel as someone who is a liberal uh, registered independent about kind of navigating being in the middle in a world that's becoming increasingly polarized? You know, I think for me, I do think it's hard to be in the middle, but I think the thing that makes it hard is that people in the middle don't talk. They don't express their views as much. They keep them to themselves and they go about their business and they kind of think like people on both sides are kind of crazy. But you don't really have, I mean, how many outspoken centrists are there? There's nothing sexy about being a centrist, right? It's like, (laughs) well, I could go this way, I could go that way, like whatever. I think for me though, where, where what's been so interesting about this experience is I can't have discussions with people on the left. Not not most of them. I mean, I'm making a broad generalization here. Of course, there are some reasonable people on the left, but I can have discussions with people on the right. You can have debates. You can have, you know, an open dialogue about these things and they don't walk away hating you or unfriending you afterwards. Whereas that's that's something that I mean, I basically lost almost all of my friends that were on the left over this whole thing. But I have but I've been embraced by the MAGA group who are like, we don't agree with you. And that's got to be very awesome. that's got to be very confusing for someone who is very excited to vote for the person that would take out Donald Trump in the 2020 election in the primary. It's, it's like I'm living in the upside down, man. I'll, yeah. I'll tell you what. <laughs> yeah. And I think in general, I'm very allergic to categorization. I don't like being categorized or put in any sort of a box because you could take a whole platform of different issues and on any given issue, I could be left, right and center. And so I, I don't like over categorization. But 
the thing I will say that is, is kind of strange, and, and, you've, and you've probably seen it with folks like Dave Rubin, right? He's been a liberal forever. I think he has more in common, at least at the values level, when we talk about things like we talked about, like free speech, with folks that are maybe kind of center right. And it's it's probably was an odd process for him to go through as well. But the thing that's very encouraging to me is I think that it shows that there's a huge percentage of people in the middle in this country that really, truly believe in these values. And these are truly, truly shared values. I think if you go all the way to the fringes, you end up in places where worldviews and values are, are very, very different. And there's much less connective tissue pulling people together. But for someone like you and me, who maybe on any given issue might have slight disagreements here and there, the things that we share in terms of values, they far outnumber the things that potentially would divide us. Oh, yeah, I, I 100% completely agree. And I mean, the thing of it is, is, you know, as I've been kind of thinking about who I want to vote for in November, I actually just just put it out there the other day, like, I'm voting for Trump in November. Like, words oh, really? I never thought I would say. Oh, yeah. Words I never thought I would say. Um, and even when I originally joined the walkaway movement, I, I flat out said when I made my walkaway post in their Facebook group, I'm like, I'm never voting for Trump. But, you know, screw the Democrats. I'm done with them. So if, it, like, if Mayor Pete had won the nomination, if Mayor Pete had, had pulled it out, yeah. would you have voted for Mayor Pete? Probably. Yeah. yeah. But because I think so. so it sounds like the issue is you're not a huge fan of Joe Biden then. It's not that I'm not a fan of Joe Biden. It's that Joe Biden is not well. Joe Biden yeah. is not all there. And this is only going to get worse. And um, I, I think the other thing that turned me on it is Donald Trump for coronavirus, man, he's stepped up. He really has. I, I have been very impressed with what he's done. I, I watch almost every daily briefing, like from start to finish, if I can, because I want to hear it from them. I don't want it to be interpreted by the media. And he has really stepped up and taken a leadership position in this. And I train leaders. That's part of what I do. And I'm like, all right, Trump. Like, you know, I always said, like, one of the things that I, you know, when I was doing all these interviews at the very beginning, people would always ask, like, what would it take for you to vote for Donald Trump? And I would always say, well, I want to see him bringing people together. I, I, I don't want him to play this divisive role where he's continuing to just sow these divisions in the country. I want him to bring people together. And I think now he is. And so I was like a combination of the Democrats giving me a really weak candidate. I cannot believe they're doing what they're doing to Joe Biden. I just think it's so well, sad. And, and in the middle of this coronavirus thing, he's completely absent. He's, he's just gone. He's nowhere we're, to be seen, which he is He can't figure out how to make a video. I know. And then you see, it's really interesting because someone put out a really great tweet. I forgot who it was. Uh, someone mm -hmm. I follow. Talking about how the virus broke woke and something about the virus and just this eminent threat and danger has definitely put sort of wokeism on its back heels and so forth. And I think there's definitely some truth in that. I still think though it's, it's, it's there. And I think that if you go out there on Twitter and obviously it sounds like you have, and you say something like, I think Trump is handling certain aspects of this. Well, you will still get attacked by the same folks in the knitting wow. group. And look, I have a bit of a mixed view. I think that the federal response was slow in a lot of ways. I think mm -hmm. that that would have been true regardless of who was president. So in the alternate universe where Hillary Clinton is president, that, that same FDA that is bottled up with red tape and regulation and bureaucracy would have been slowing her down in the same way that it slowed Trump down. And, you know, he was obviously more aggressive than I think Joe Biden would have on shutting travel down with China because Joe Biden called it xenophobic and racist on January 31st when he started the process of limiting and restricting travel. And then I really liked seeing Trump talk about our governor here, uh, Gavin Newsom, who is extremely liberal. I mean, he was the mayor of San Francisco, for crying out loud. They've both been saying nice things about each other and the partnership 
between sort of the state and the federal level teams. Same thing with Cuomo, right? And it's weird. I'm not a Gavin Newsom fan at all, but I've been very impressed with him for stepping up and and working with the president. I think the president's stock has gone up a little bit in my book too, in terms of that bipartisan energy. And same thing with him and Andrew Cuomo. And quite frankly, if Andrew Cuomo were the Democrat uh, nominee instead of Joe Biden, I think it'd be much more of a race. In fact, probably the advantage would be to Cuomo because you're talking about someone who's demonstrated real bipartisan leadership through the crisis. Oh, I, I completely agree. And who knows, the Democrats may try to pull that off. Who knows if they'll be successful or what the ramifications will be. But honestly, you know, I mean, for me, I think that the country is rallying behind Trump. And I agree with you, too, about, I mean, just looking at the data, like his approval rating is now higher than his disapproval rating, according to this new poll from The Washington Post that just came out. It's like mind boggling to me that he's been able to pull this off. But you make also a good point about the woke issue in that, listen, we actually have a real battle to fight now. Yeah. Like a lot of the woke stuff, it's fake made up nonsense. Right. Maybe it has like a kernel of truth to of it. Of course, but like, yeah, no, it's, it, mostly it's not, it's not, there may be, look, we're not saying that all of these fights I know the term social justice gets used, but there there are there are real fights that need to be fought and there's real yeah. broken systemic things in society that are real. The problem is those get totally papered over when it gets turned into this sport, this online, almost like live action role play, like LARPing on uh, Twitter. That sort of papers over the real underlying issues that do need to be addressed societally. And so I think you're right, clearly. Yeah. And so we'll see. I mean, I, I really hope that this does kill woke culture, to be honest. If, if this kills woke culture, then fine. I will, I will have been in quarantine for however long, but I will be completely okay with it coming out. <laughs> so this next wave of questions, are these are questions that I ask every single guest. So you can take them mm -hmm. in any direction that you want. The first one is kind of a spin on the, the there, there was a, a book Peter Thiel wrote called Zero to One, and it's a famous interview question that he asked. And it's actually really kind of hard to answer. But the question is some version of what's something you believe that most people don't? And I think you've already hit a couple of these, but uh, maybe if you want to hit like a non-political one. Oh, I'll go. I'll hit a spiritual one. Okay. You want to do a spiritual yeah, one? Yeah, let's, let's okay. go there. So I believe, and uh, oh gosh, I'm, I can't believe I'm saying this out loud. I'm going to sound crazy. This is so, awesome. I already love it. <laughs> so I am I am a very spiritual person. I am not a religious person. I uh -huh. do not belong to any of the major religions, but uh, but I do commune with God through my own ways, sometimes mm -hmm. through meditation, sometimes through ayahuasca, all those things. And what I believe is that, you know, as spiritual beings, we make choices about the human experience we're going to have. And the purpose of us being here is all about just experiencing different things. Now, why might we want to experience things? Because if we as spiritual beings experience something, that teaches God about what it's like. Now, we have to experience, though, both positive and negative because we learn through contrast. So, for example, if you have never taken a cold shower in your life, you probably don't really appreciate how amazing a hot shower is, right? That mm -hmm. hot shower is like so much better. So it's kind of the same things with life experiences. We might choose to come here and be like the king of the castle or like a, you know, famous, you know, celebrity that's wealthy, that has all this money and power and all this stuff. Or we might choose to become an oppressed person or someone that, you know, is, lives in poverty, someone that really struggles in life. And those are choices we make before we come here. Hmm. And I think when I look at situations, I mean, a lot of social justice issues, frankly, from the spiritual perspective I have, I, I kind of have to take a step back and say, okay, 
on some sort of deep spiritual level, people made choices about what roles they wanted to play. And, and those roles all have a purpose. Who am I to judge what someone else's experience is? We're not running the same race. So that's hmm. my crazy thing that I No, that's, that's, that's fascinating. I think one societal trend that I've sort of been thinking about a lot is if you look at the trend or the chart of Americans that um, consider themselves religious on any level, even like spiritual or faith oriented, it's generally been a trend downward. And obviously the country historically has been very, very Protestant, Catholic, Christian, Judeo-Christian roots and all of that. So we started with a very, very high number. And it's, it's not surprising that as the millennials have come of age and they've gone through very, very secular colleges and education, that that's kind of a trend that's happening. One of my sort of contrarian beliefs is I think in the next five years, it might start to reverse. And kind of like you said, I don't think it necessarily means folks adopt really orthodox, you know, organized religion. I think organized religion is, is sort of declining for a very legitimate reason. But I think in terms of people embracing spirituality, faith, sort of directly and on their own terms, I, I could see that being a trend that, that actually starts to reverse. And... What's interesting is I could see like atheism, for example, shifting again more towards agnosticism and spirituality because folks are hungry for and searching for meaning. And so having that lens when you look at life is very helpful, especially when you're dealing with struggles or things that are good or things that are bad. It allows you to put it in a, in a context, in a framework to make sense of it. And so I like your, your thing that most people don't believe. Yay. Okay, next question. What's a problem that you're concerned about that most people are not. So, I mean, this comes from, you know, me being an organizational psychologist is I am, I'm very worried right now. Not, I'm, I'm worried about people that are losing their jobs and getting laid off, but I am, I am equally concerned about how I see companies treating employees that frankly, they're going to need to be there when this is all over. I think, you know, because to some extent it almost feels like people are forgetting this is, this is temporary. This is not going to last forever. We don't know how long this is going to last, but it is not going to last forever. And at some point we're gonna to have to go back to work. And what I'm seeing is a lot of organizations treating their employees that they're going to need very poorly in this transition and nitpicking on things and, and micromanaging them and making them feel as though they're not trusted and disempowering them. And it's like, listen, your employees are going to come back to you at some point and you're going to need them. And mm -hmm. what are you going to do? What are you doing to make sure you keep them engaged? You keep them focused. You keep the wheels on the wagon because the more businesses that can kind of keep the wheels on the wagon um, in this interim time, the easier it's going to be to transition back. And so that's really one of the things I'm thinking a lot about. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think that when folks are faced with a crisis and we're dealing with both like a health crisis and an economic crisis all at the same time and businesses are really feeling the weight of it. I think sometimes when you sort of panic or when you're panicked organizationally or individually or as a manager or a leader or what have you or as an employee, there might be a tendency to turn inward a little bit and uh, you could almost like lose empathy, organizational empathy. That's sort of one fork in the road. And I think the other fork, which again, hopefully more companies take this tact, is to actually up-level the level of empathy um, towards employees and really helping them work through this really, really unprecedented thing that we're dealing with, maybe hiring someone like you to come in and actually help you know, navigate mm -hmm. that transition. But mm -hmm. these organizations and cultures can be either impacted positively, having gone through a very, very tough situation, or be impacted negatively to the downside by not going through it in the right way. 
Yeah. And I mean, you bring up a really good point, too. And I think it's, it's worth emphasizing in that everything can be both a positive and a negative. Uh-huh. Right. You can make this into a positive situation if you want it to be. I mean, what a bonding moment for employees and their bosses or employees and their organizations or just groups of people in general. It doesn't even need to be work related is this could all be a very positive thing for us, I believe. Yeah, I mean, this is called the Paradox Podcast, so it wouldn't be a full episode mm-hmm. if we didn't hit a couple paradoxes. And I think you're right. I think this experience we're going through, it's its very strange. I've, I've never felt more connected probably to my neighbors and my community than the last <laughs> three, four, five weeks. I just have countless examples of neighbors down the street dropping off meals or my wife cooked cookies for the, the whole little neighborhood and like went and dropped them off. And since we couldn't do anything fun for St. Patty's Day, people just put little shamrocks in their windows and the kids <laughs> could just go door to door shamrock hunting. I mean, just stuff that otherwise wouldn't have happened. But because we're separated, ironically and paradoxically, we're actually being drawn together in a very interesting way. Yeah. And so you're right. I think growth comes at the other end or the other side of of obstacles generally. And so we don't seek these obstacles and definitely no one would have chosen for this to happen. But the optimist in me firmly believes that a lot of good will come out of it, hopefully at the cultural and the societal level and at the individual level as well. Okay, this is the flip side of that other question. What's a problem that most people are very concerned about that you're just not concerned about? You know, Okay, I almost hesitate to say this like, and, and be held accountable for it later. I'm not worried about the economy. I'm really not. Okay. I'm not. I, I really think that that it's going to bounce back. And I feel like, you know, I mean, I'm not going to say right away. Like, I think there's going to be some struggle. There's there's going to be some pain there. But I think that once once they're able to figure this out and get people back to work, however soon or <laughs> that may come, I really do think things are going to bounce back relatively quickly. And I think that the days seem so long right now is I think the problem. I, th- I think people feel like this has been going on for longer than it actually has been. And, you know, this is, I, I really think we're going to bounce back. That's that's one, one I'm not worried yeah, about. Yeah, I love that. So, someone had, again, <laughs> not, to, not to overly reference Twitter, but someone yeah. had a really great tweet And they said, I've lived through all these decades now, the 1980s, the 1990s, the 2000s, the 2010s, and March. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the month of March really felt like seriously years and years and years. I I love the economic take. I I am concerned about the economy in in terms of just the short-term pain people are going through. And I think, think honestly, the psychological damage... Of, of you know losing your job being laid off is, is is horrible but I think the economic downturn is very psychological in the sense that compared to 2008 2009 when we had the Great Recession and I was graduating basically from college during that time period not a great time to graduate and look for a job but there were a lot of structural things in the economy that were wrong obviously the mortgage crisis being sort of the centerpiece of that that led to a very very prolonged recession that we just that took forever to pull out of. In this case, I mean, if you look at the banking system, the banking system is very solvent compared to 2008. We had low unemployment up until uh, a month or two ago. So structurally, I don't think there's like a whole lot wrong with the economy. There's certainly areas of concern as there always are, but people are panicked and dealing with the psychology of how big is this pandemic going to be? And so I think you're right. I think if we get to say mid to late April, and we're starting to climb down this curve, kind of like Italy is just starting to, and and uh, South Korea was very successful at climbing down this curve very quickly. I think confidence will start to come back. People's 
uh, fear will start to subside. And I think that will directly translate into an economic recovery that I also believe is going to be relatively quick. We were due for a recession anyway, because we hadn't had one. So on some level, I think like this could be that. And I think there's something healthy about having a recession every once in a while, obviously not a pandemic. But yeah, I could totally see us bouncing back by, you know, the fall. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Okay, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Don't read the comments. Um, (laughs) No, no. I mean, well, lately that's been the best piece of advice. No, I think uh, I had a mentor about 15 years ago. She said to me, I was like, I used to be... I used to make so many people mad and I still do make people mad on occasion, but I I made people unnecessarily mad. And she pulled me aside at work one day and she was like, Carlin, everyone knows you're smart. You don't have to prove that you're smart, (laughs) but it's not about being right. It's about being effective. Oh, interesting. And I didn't understand that piece of advice at the time, but now I really understand it. Where like, you know, you're you're not getting graded when you're in the real world. You're not getting like a hundred on the test or something. It's about how you make people feel, and Mm -hmm. um, that that's something that I really carried with me, and it's influenced a lot of the work I do today, which is all about. If you make people feel good, they're going to show up. They're going to perform for you. So that's what I mean. Emotions matter. And I, I think that sometimes, especially when it comes to social media, my gosh, people forget that. Yeah, definitely. It's it's not all scorched earth policy. It's funny. Whenever I see on social media, two people who disagree have a really, really constructive, positive a friendly, amiable exchange. And one person's like, oh, actually, you know, I kind of see what you're saying. Maybe I've modified my view. It's almost like people that are watching that thread, their heads explode. They're like, did this just happen? This is this doesn't happen. And so there's so much power actually in uh, being able to have that dialogue and be effective and not be so worried about winning or scoring points or dunking on people. That's, that's a short-term game. It's not a long-term game. And I think ultimately you want to play long-term games with long-term people. And so I think that's a good one. But uh, Dr. Carlin, I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been super, super fun. If folks want to connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, they can find me on my website, zenworkplace.com. And they can also connect with me on Twitter at Dr. Carlin B. Awesome. Well, everybody go follow Dr. Carlin B. Read her. uh, How many people have read that blog post now? Like probably like millions and millions three it was like 3.3 million last oh time my i looked gosh. yeah <laughs> that is that's is insane it's everyone insane. everyone go read the blog post and actually i've read a couple of your other blog posts that are really really great too but thanks for joining me on the podcast and this was a lot of fun thank you for having me we appreciate you taking the time to join us for this episode of the paradox podcast we're aiming for commute length conversations with original thinkers that will push your perspective and pull you into the marketplace of ideas If you're new to the podcast, we encourage you to check out our previous episodes. In episode number nine, I chatted with Jeff Morris Jr. about investing in a post-COVID-19 future, non-linear career paths in times of economic uncertainty, moving to Kansas to break into tech, and the unbundling of talent. So I um, went back to San Francisco and I was applying to all these companies and had some, I guess you could say, bad luck or maybe it worked out as it was meant to be, but I applied to be one of the first 15 employees at Uber. I, I rented a, a desk space at this place called Rocket Space, which was probably the original WeWork in San Francisco. And I sat next to the early Uber team. I had the table next to me and I applied to join their team, made like a 50 page deck and they wouldn't interview me. Applied to Twitter where my brother-in-law worked. I think I would have been like a top 100 or 150 employee there, didn't get that. And then applied to Airbnb as like a top 50 employee and didn't get that and so I was kind of like 
shit, like I, I found a lot of good companies. I wish I was an investor back then, but. <laughs> yeah, clearly a knack for identifying good companies early. That was a good yeah. sign. That was a special time period too. I, I would say there was more white space. But then I went to South by Southwest and met this team from, from a company called Zarly, which had just raised like a million dollars the day before at a startup weekend in, in LA from folks like Ashton Kutcher and other people. And it was just a really exciting idea. I followed the, the hiring manager on Twitter. He posted a job. I was the first person to apply at 2 a.m. Got on the phone with them the next day. They hired me to a two-month contract, depending on me moving to Kansas City within 24 hours. And I just said, you know, fuck it. I'm going to go do this. At least I'll be in the tech industry. And then I can kind of figure it out from there. And ended up staying there for about three over three years, but that was that was how I got my job. It wasn't it wasn't glamorous. I had to move to Kansas City to to break into tech, and I think it's easy to like see people on Twitter and think they're different from you, or they, you know, it was like the path was like much more obvious. But for me, it was like the, the least obvious path to to getting where I'm now. A quick housekeeping note, we just launched a new website for the podcast at paradoxpodcast.co, which will have all episodes and everything you need to know about the podcast. If you enter your email address and subscribe, you'll get new episodes sent directly to your inbox one to two days early. And you can always drop us a line on the contact form. We read every single message and really value constructive feedback. That's a wrap for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. If you'd like to connect, you can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Tibbetts. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review us on iTunes to spread the word. And until next time, take care of yourself.